Hi, I'm Claire Wright, and this is Shooting the Past, where every picture is worth at least a thousand words, if not a whole history. Rack is important because we sit on rack, we eat on rack, we sleep on rack. We don't use bed, we don't use sofa. <laughs> I have a bed, but I don't sleep on bed. <laughs> I sleep on racks. <laughs> When you think of photographs of asylum seekers, I bet the same images pop into your head as mine. Skinny, shabbily clad men crammed into leaky vessels, a multitude of misery, many eyes desperate and weary, many arms outstretched, pleading for deliverance. Go on, type asylum seeker or boat people into Google Images and see what comes up. But this photograph I'm holding now shows a man alone, marooned in an ocean of brightly coloured and patterned rugs. Great expanses of water are replaced by great stretches of fabric. Rich reds, sandy browns, vibrant oranges and flashes of peacock green. And the man in the photo has a name, Najaf Mazari. There sits Najaf in the centre of the frame, upright in a chair, beaming, proprietorial, a king on a throne in an empire of rugs. None of this conforms to the standard picture of the refugee. Not the smile, not the opulence, not the sense of control and mastery. If most asylum seeker photos scream, please help me, please, this one quickly asserts, no worries mate, I've got this. So what is Najaf's story? And why does he look so astonishingly happy? You see, the first thing I'm really proud of, I'm a Hazara, the first thing. The second, if you found democracy in Afghanistan, you can find the real democracy in Hazara area. And our, our girls, our boy, ours, our traveling, going to the school by feet, by bicycle or by donkey, because we believe in education. That's why I have a lot of female educated in the Hazara tribes. If a mother is educated, children have education. The reason why Hazaras are persecuted... I Najaf invites me to meet him at his shop in Paran, in Melbourne's affluent Inner East. He offers me a stool, but we agree to sit down on a pile of rugs. Najaf's wife, Hakima, sits with us, tapping away on her mobile phone. I think she might be playing Candy Crush. Najaf tells me he's not sure when he was born, but it was around 1971, in mazar sharif near the Uzbekistan border. He worked as a shepherd as a boy and learned his rug-making skills at the age of 12 after his father died. As we sip tea, his harrowing story unfolds. My brother was collecting the honey at the farm and killed between the war between the Russian and the Mujahideen. And who was supporting the Mujahideen? That is another question. Because the US was giving the guns with including the Saudis, the Pakistans, everything. I'm sure if you're a historian, he knows that. But my uncle and his son killed by the Taliban mm. and captured and burned alive. Right. Yeah. Inside the house. After Najaf's two brothers, brother-in-law and nephew were all killed and his home was destroyed by rocket attack, he fled Afghanistan. Najaf left behind his mother, his wife and six-month-old daughter. How did he get to Australia? I come by boat. I'm a boat person. So how long did it take you to get here? Uh, I believe over 20 days 
Yeah, I traveled by from Afghanistan to Pakistan and from Pakistan to Indonesia and from Indonesia take the boat. So yeah. you paid a, a people smuggler? Yeah, three thousand five hundred. Uh, the boat is landing in a, a very small island. It's called Ashmurif. Uh, it's no houses there, nothing's there. And uh, then uh, from the Ashmurif Australian Navy, carriers to bring to the Nor- uh, Darwin. And from Darwin, they take to the Adelaide, from Adelaide to Umrah Detention Center. So you arrived in Woomera in 2001? Exactly, you're right. Yeah. Tell me what it was like in the detention center. That time was so tough. The first thing, you cannot have a media. The first thing. The second thing, you totally touch out of the rest of the world. You know, communication or the other. I don't know about my future, what's happening. The second, you lost your name. You know, for example, when they call you there, like my name was Najaf, they didn't call me Najaf. What did they call you? 912. That was my uh, number. <laughs> the Chinese number. <laughs> Up to four separate breakouts, around 500 asylum seekers escaped from the Woomera detention center in the state's isolated far north. In just one day, the population of Woomera has more than doubled. Nearly 500 asylum seekers have taken to the streets to protest against what they see as an unnecessarily long time in detention and the perceived inability of immigration department officials to give a clear answer on when they might be released. In 2001, Najaf was assessed as a genuine refugee and granted permanent residency. His wife and daughter joined him in Australia in 2006. They settled in Melbourne, when Najaf quickly set about restitching the fabric of his family life. The day I arrived, after two weeks, I found a job in Australia. Until now, I keep working. Every refugee is not coming with an empty hand. Like myself, I, I didn't come with, of course I didn't carry with money with me, but I carry a skill with me. Now, Jeff, I have to say it's incredible to me to know that you left Woomera in 2001 and by 2008 when this photograph was taken you had already established this amazing shop that we're sitting in full of these beautiful rugs it's not like you've got a little stall at the market or something (laughs) you in that six years so much had happened in your life Tell me how you got from being let out of detention centre to having this beautiful shop. I not just build a business, I build a lot of things as well. The first thing, I, I built bridge. I ship it by, become a rack maker, from the rack maker. And when I arrived in Australia, I thought I'm starting repairing racks. Sorry when I'm talking rags, not drugs, because a lot of Australians <laughs> get confused. I started my business from the zero without taking any money from the bank. And also, I'm co-writer of two books, and now third book's coming very soon. Uh, I'm sure uh, uh, you don't know about the third book. It is called The Rack Maker, Continue Journey. <laughs> I'm Claire Wright, and this is Shooting the Past, where each week, one photograph helps us dive deep into Australian history. 
So now, Jeff, this photo, can you tell me, do you remember this day? Yeah, this day uh, I was uh, learning a little by little English, I did. And I have uh, my extending my friendship with Australian. Now we can see on this photo as the shop is like uh, almost full. I know that Hazara are a very storytelling culture, and you one of your books yeah. is all stories from your back from yeah. your background, stories that you were told as as a child, and that no doubt you tell your daughter. Do you think that this photo tells a story? This photo is uh, exciting time was for me. <laughs> if you look at this photo, it's very westernized photo, very westernized. It looks like a, a permanent businessman, you know. But still, I try to show in this photo as my traditional way as well. Was it the photographer or you who suggested you sitting on a chair? No, I suggested. That's my, it was my selection. Yeah. You know, because I start from very small drop my business. If your businesses grow, how, how you feel? <laughs> how you feel it? You want to be as high as you can. Yeah, high as can. Like we're saying in Afghanistan, don't look like a donkey in front of your feet. Look like a camel to the mountain, to cross the mountain. But exactly I did. <laughs> oh, here she is. Yeah, she's here. Come yeah. home from school. Hello. Hello, how are you? About an hour into our conversation, Najaf's daughter Maria arrives at the shop. She's wearing hijab, her private school uniform, and the warm, open smile she's clearly inherited from her father. She joins us on the floor. And later, when I asked Najaf to read a passage from his book, he suggests that Maria read it instead. The passage is about watching fellow detainees play soccer in Woomera. Okay. <laughs> Not having that cigarette I desire, I shuffle around the edge of the soccer pitch and stand in a different place and continue to watch the game. The sun overhead has moved in a small distance on its journey across the sky. I look away from the game and wonder what I can think about to make the sun move faster. I have enough time in November to think about anything I want. Such luxury. Possibly I will think about rugs, about the joy I feel when my eyes rest upon a fine rug, a true rug made from the best wool, woven by a master. But no, it is not a good idea to think about rugs. If I do, I will make myself sad. I will want to touch the rug, to feel the wool in my fingers, study the pattern and turn over and study the craft of the weaver from the back. I will want to brush the palm of my hand over the surface of the rug and in doing so my hand will tell me a whole new story of making the rug and the story will go straight into my heart so I will not think of rugs, not today. <laughs> People will always flee their countries if they are facing death or persecution there and that flight will not always be orderly. And it is unreasonable to expect that everybody facing war or conflict or persecution will always follow the proper procedures in order to get to safety. It's a funny thing about storytelling. You end up making order out of chaos. The mess and muddle of history is tidied up by the logic and sequence of narrative. Najaf has clearly found not only order, but also peace in his reckoning of the past. But I want to know about the legal and structural issues Najaf faced in making his journey. I've sought out lawyer and author Madeleine Gleeson, an expert in international refugee law. Her award-winning book, Offshore, investigates official government statements and parliamentary inquiries to understand Australia's recent refugee processing policies. What does someone who has studied hundreds of cases make of this photo of Najaf? 
To be honest, I did not see a refugee at first, having just looked at the photo and not known anything about a backstory. I thought perhaps it was an image representing multicultural Australia or alternatively, perhaps something about small businesses. That's where my mind went to first, even though my area of work and the the area in which I, I spend most of my time is all about refugee law and policy. That's not where my mind first went when I looked at this photo. I think it certainly demonstrates just how ordinary if we can use that term, uh, most asylum seekers and refugees are if you just gave them an opportunity to uh, settle into the community and establish life the way anyone else would want to. It's not every day you get to speak to a lawyer for free. So I take this opportunity to ask Madeline to clarify an issue I've never quite grasped. What is the difference between an asylum seeker and a refugee? Every person has the right to seek asylum. If they are fleeing persecution or serious threats to their life and safety, they have a right to flee, and that might need to be chaotic, it might need to be without a visa, it might need to be suddenly. So in that sense, people who do so have not done anything wrong, per se. The confusion comes in because countries then set requirements, often in the form of visas, and their own domestic legislation that set criteria for entering. So a person could be in breach of that domestic law, but still be complying with their international right to seek asylum. What are the mechanisms then that people have to go by to move from being domestically illegal to internationally legal? Well, every country that has signed up to the Refugee Convention, including Australia, should have a system in place whereby if someone arrives at an airport or arrives by boat and uh, claims asylum, that they can then go into that procedure to be assessed. Um, if they're found not to be a refugee, then they may then have to be returned home. But if they are found to have a legitimate claim, they should be then settled and offered protection in the country. We have a proud record of welcoming people from 140 our message is clear. There's no point in travelling to Australia by boat. If someone seeks to come to Australia, then they are at risk of going to Malaysia to the back of the queue. We will decide who comes to this country and the circumstances in which they come. What we've seen in Australia since the 1990s is a gradual uh, reinforcement, securitisation of our borders as the policies have become more and more restrictive. So it was in the early 1990s that we reintroduced mandatory detention of asylum seekers who arrive in this country. That didn't exist before. Uh, now, it's almost unthinkable to imagine Australia without it. And as the policies got more restrictive, especially after the, the Tampa affair in 2001, we then began to see offshore processing in Nauru and Papua New Guinea, the introduction of temporary protection visas uh, and various other policies that have gradually become increasingly restrictive, exclusionary and based around this core principle of deterrence. I'm trying to reconcile the intimacy of Najaf's story with the historically and politically loaded policy position of border control. As this photo suggests, Najaf's life is textured, layered. But the legalities seem so clipped and precise. So I'm keen to know what his resettlement options were once he'd fled Afghanistan. It's important to remember that nobody gets on a boat if they have a better option. It is a worst case scenario. Uh, it is very dangerous and that's been established time and time again both in the Mediterranean and in our own region. Just how dangerous if not deadly these journeys can be. That is a valid concern. So we need to understand that somebody would never get on that boat if they were offered uh, a safe 
uh, an, an achievable alternative pathway to the place they're trying to get to. So the obvious answer, in simplest terms, is to provide those alternatives. Now, the complexity then is what are those alternatives and how do we implement them? The issue we face in Australia today is we are hardly exploring any of them, hardly exploring any of the vast range of proposed alternatives that have been put forward and that continue to be debated uh, because the focus is so squarely on deterrence and on uh, conveying a clear and unwavering message, do not come to Australia by boat, you will not uh, meet a pleasant situation if you come here that way. But it also requires something more. It requires a broader cultural shift away from this focus on deterrence and, and punishment and negativity and no, you will not come here. Australia has a fantastic track record as a multicultural country and as a country which is able to uh, bring in people from other parts of the world and integrate them and to bring in refugees and provide them with the services they require to become productive and useful and valuable members of our Australian community. So that is a skill that we have. It's unfortunate that especially in recent years we've been moving away from that inclusive integration approach towards this exclusionary approach. I'm Claire Wright and this is Shooting the Past where each week one photograph helps us dive deep into Australian history. When we sit in this media-saturated world, we actually need to look at images that somehow pierce through the vast amount of images that are produced every day on a daily basis. The whole matter of asylum seekers is so weighed down by bombast and cant. I suppose that's why I was so attracted to the photograph of Najef in the first place. It's light. Not flimsy, insubstantial light, but radiant, luminous light. Maybe the camera can tell us something that no amount of words can. Philip George is an artist, photographer and associate professor in media arts at the University of New South Wales. What does Philip see when he looks at this photo? What I see immediately is a fantastic rug on the right-hand side that I think I need to talk to Najif about buying. <laughs> <laughs> it's a wonderful, a wonderful shop and a wonderful rug. Um, but... What I'm also seeing here is someone who's happy, contented, urbane, well-dressed and uh, quite happy. This, this image for me, I also, when I see this image, I can actually smell the rugs and it's a, it's a soft image, it's embracing, it's warm. And when you go into these rugs, rug shops, everything's soft, everything uh, is sort of quiet and calm and wonderful. So um, in terms of a, a, a refugee image, I think it's an image of fantastic success. Uh, this, this is something um, that we actually have seen in the past where we see the, the Greeks and the Italians in their shops and their cafes and milk bars and people that have settled, assimilated, become Australian and, and then uh, just have become part of the community. This is an image that uh, I'm not familiar with because uh, we are really essentially being fed all these very distressful images. So it's, uh, it's the opposite of what we're normally seeing. Philip George confirms my hunch that the photograph of Najaf is unusual. So what was the role of photography in not simply documenting the asylum seeker issue, but fueling a national anxiety about invasion? Yes, they augmented that fear. They gave, they gave an iconic frame to that fear. That, and so... The, the people who were constructing that narrative uh, jumped on these images and, and, and portrayed them in a particular way. 
So does this mean that photographs can can never be neutral, that we're only ever seeing them through the perspective of our own uh, hopes, ideologies, uh, needs, um, demands? Uh, are photographs inherently political objects? Uh, that's a very good question. I think it depends on who's looking and how it's framed and in what context. If, we, if we're looking at Najif's image, we could see that in a newspaper and it could be a, a, an advertising for cheap carpets on a Saturday afternoon. Uh, in another frame, like the one we're talking about now, it's actually a successful Im uh, immigration refugee story. So we could actually twist the image that we're looking at immediately. Uh, just by the narrative that we attach to it. I think that the framing of the image I find is critical, how you actually, where do you point the camera and when, that's really important. And when you're taking your photographs, composing them, restructuring them later, even after you've taken them and then you, as you suggest, you realise later what you've got, do you have a sense of posterity that the images that you're creating may be viewed by people in a hundred years' time and be used as a lens to reflect back this particular era that we're living through now? Absolutely. Um, in fact, I've got images that of places that no longer exist. They've been blown up by Daesh. Uh, when you look at somewhere like Palmyra, I have photographs of Palmyra, of, of parts of Palmyra that have been blown up. So yes, when we look at that particular body of work, there are images there that no longer exist. They only have evidence as an archive. If you had to give a caption to our image of Najaf here, what would you put on it? A caption of Najaf. How you going? <laughs> um, I think I would see Najaf saying, welcome. I think welcome is a good word. I can see his face and I can see... And I know the culture, the Hazara culture, it's, it's welcome, please have a cup of tea, I have dinner coming, eat with me. So I think welcome would be a good one. And I build a business, like I said, I, I write two books, and I work at two documentary film and one a short action film. Now I'm talking a big film, Hollywood. It's, uh, did you know Anthony Lapalia? Mm -hmm. Yes, I do. Yeah, he was here in my shop and he wanted directing my film. I was going to thought he was going to play you. No, he's he going to directing my film. That's fantastic. That's and very Steve, exciting. Is Steve Bastoni going to play me? Oh my goodness. <laughs> <laughs> That's very exciting, Najaf. Yeah. Now, what do you expect him from the refugees? Yeah. For exactly from the both people. photograph of Najaf Mazari and his amazing Technicolor rug shop, head over to the Shooting the Past website at ABC Online. If you'd like to suggest your caption for the photo, you can use the comments page. And I suggest following Najaf on Instagram for a daily splash of colour in your life. 
My thanks to Najaf, Hakima and Maria Mazari for their gracious hospitality. Also to Madeleine Gleeson and Philip George. This has been the last episode in this season of Shooting the Past. My heartfelt gratitude and respect to producers Michelle Rayner and Lynn Gallagher for bringing me along on this wonderful journey. And huge thanks to sound engineers Kerry Dell and Brendan O'Neill for the expert mix and Russell Stapleton for the gorgeous theme music. I'm Claire Wright. Don't forget you can download the whole series of Shooting the Past at ABC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts. And you can view all eight photographs at the Shooting the Past website. And while you're there, find a fun visual diary of the making of this series. Now go grab your cameras, get out there and make history. History.